Our scripture reading today is from Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Micah. Good morning. Welcome to the Brookside campus of Christ Community. My name's Taylor, um, and I do just want to add my welcome to the welcome Micah already gave you. Uh, We're so glad that you're with us this morning. We're about to uh, transition into a time of teaching where we open up the Word of God and um, unpack it a little bit, see what it has to say to us today as Christ Community in Kansas City in 2019. Uh, But before we do that, would you uh, please pray with me? Father God, um, I'm so grateful for who you are. God, thank you for an extra hour of sleep. Thank you for the rest that you give us and that you call us to. God, this morning I pray that each person in this room, including myself, would come to know your power. They would encounter your power in a very real way. And I know that that I am far too weak to preach your word faithfully unless your power is here. And I know that each and every one of us in this room is far too weak to live a faithful life in service of you, unless we are given your power. And so, God, I pray that we would lean on that power this morning and and throughout the rest of the week. pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by his Spirit. Amen. Well, I would guess that if I surveyed everyone in this room, uh, most of you could come up with one or two places, locations in your life that, for whatever reason, are uniquely meaningful to you. I think we all have these places that over time, whether they're childhood homes or favorite vacation spots, hold a special place in our heart, don't we? Uh, For me, one of those places is a place uh, in the middle of Wisconsin called Green Lake. And Green Lake, nothing really special goes on there most of the year. But for two weeks every year, for the past 12 years, I have driven up to the middle of Wisconsin to this beautiful lake to take part in a camp called Northern Pines. Now, there's so many things that I could say about Northern Pines, uh, but, but this morning I want to take you all the way back to where my involvement with that camp first started, my first trip to one of my favorite places. I was a freshman in high school. I didn't really know the campground. I didn't really know anyone there, and uh, I signed up in this random room with more freshman guys, and we became a small group, and, and I came to find out that the high school program at Northern Pines uh, has this tradition of a scavenger hunt that is the biggest thing that they do every year, um, and 
when I say scavenger hunt, I'm not talking about like, I found a pipe cleaner in the kitchen, five points. That's not the tiny treasure hunt. It's, it's a big, amazing race style, uh, physical challenges, eating challenges, like a seven mile run. It's an intense thing. And because I'm competitive, I was all in. I was like, yes, this sounds awesome. Let's do it. But have you ever been in a group of people where you're like, you're getting ready to do something together and you're like, we're not going anywhere. You just look around at the people in the group and you're like, this looks like the losing team is what this looks like. Like, I've seen us before. This is, this is, what, uh, this is what we're going to do is we're, we're going to lose. There's no chance. Uh, I, I love these guys that, that I was in a group with, but, uh, you know, you look around and, and everyone else looked like they were engineered to win the scavenger hunt, like they were created for this specific purpose in their life. And, and then we looked more like the cast of the movie The Benchwarmers, right? We, there was no chance... Um, that I thought we were going to win this. And I'll give you a picture of, of how bad this actually was. We had to stop multiple times in the middle of the scavenger hunt so that a couple of guys in our group could take a smoke break. <laughs> like, like that actually happened, that we had to stop so these guys could take a, a smoke break. And at that moment, if anyone was watching us sit and wait for these guys to get done smoking, um, they would have been like, that's the losing team. There's no way that team is winning anything at all in life, especially not the scavenger hunt. Um, that, that's, that's what we looked like. But what's crazy is that at that moment, we had no idea, but we were actually in first place. <laughs> like we're sitting there, these guys are smoking, and we're in first place in this race. Uh, and we actually ended up winning the race. And when we shot off the flare, and yes, there was a flare, that's how intense this was, the winning team shoots off a flare uh, to say that we won. When we did that, it was far more exhilarating to us than if we had been a group of cross-country runners who were expected to win. And actually, we, we ended up winning two of the next three years, that exact same group of guys. And we love stories like this, don't we? We love stories where a team or something is, is looking like it's going to lose, but actually ends up, against all odds, winning. That's what was fascinating to me, what I enjoyed about Game 7 of the World Series last week, is the Astros looked like they had it locked down, and in the late innings, the Nationals came back and won. We love those stories. But as much as we love those stories, I think there's also a part of us that really, really hates to pluck the part of a loser. We want power. We desire control. We want to make sure that we win or at least look like we're winning to others who are watching. We don't want to play the part of a loser, even though those stories are appealing to us. Now, if you're just joining us, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation, uh, looking at the first couple of chapters where Jesus gives his last word uh, to seven very real historic churches in what is now Turkey. Um, and to these churches, if you've been with us, if you've heard these letters, you've probably noticed that a lot of the things that Jesus calls these churches and us today to are pretty demanding, aren't they? He says things like, it should cost you something to follow me. You might have to suffer to follow me. Don't compromise on what you believe and become like the culture around you. you. You might have to believe things that the people around you don't think you should believe. You might have to love people around you in a way that it, it doesn't look like people should love people. He's calling us to challenging things. And, and for some of us, we might hear all that stuff and say, man, being faithful to Jesus sounds like we're just mailing in our defeat. It sounds like we're just committing ourselves to a life that just always looks like we're losing. 
We just heard read a letter to a church in Philadelphia that, that that church may have felt a lot of those same things. And yet, in the midst of that, Jesus, all he has to say to the Philadelphian church is things that are encouraging. All he's doing is encouraging them. He has nothing bad to say. He just says, keep doing what you're doing. And if you keep doing what you're doing, not only that, not only we finish, but, but you'll actually conquer. You'll overcome. You'll win. This word conquer, if you've noticed, has actually appeared in every letter we've looked at so far. Uh, at the end, Jesus says something like, if you keep doing this, or if you start doing this, or if you stop doing this, or if you change this, you will conquer. And in spite of all of the complexity of the book of Revelation, there are some people who believe that you can understand its basic message uh, by understanding this one word. And it's the Greek word nikao. Everyone say nikao. Nikao. Oh, everyone say nikao. Yeah, there you go. Very good. Um, Nikao is actually the word that the company Nike looked to to brand it when it branded itself, that Nike, the Nikao. Um, and, And it means to conquer or to overcome. Jesus gives a picture of overcoming to this church, but he gives a picture that looks a lot different than what we would expect. The truth that we see about overcoming in the church of Philadelphia is this. When Jesus is king, Winning looks a lot like losing. When Jesus is king, winning looks a lot like losing. So this morning, we're asking ourselves the question, what does it look like to be a church that overcomes? How do we as a church, as a people, actually overcome in this world? And I think this letter highlights two powers, if you want to remember it that way, two powers that are at play in a church that overcomes. So let's look at what Jesus says, starting in verse 7, to the church of Philadelphia. He says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. So Jesus introduces himself here uh, with the imagery of a key and a door. And that's a little bit strange, but it probably looks back to the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, King Hezekiah is the king of Judah, um, and he's changing his secretary of state from one man to another man. Super fascinating stuff, right? Uh, He's changing to a man named Eliakim. And Eliakim, he gives what he calls the key to the house of David. This new secretary of state gets the key to the house of David. And and, and here's what that means. That means that Eliakim had access to the palace of the king. That's what that key did. It gave him access to the palace of the king. Now, when we think about keys today, we think more about like these weird little things forged by the great hands of a Walmart employee. Uh, but, but, But really, it's more of like a big metal contraption. It would have been a big metal bar that they would have shut securely the doors to the palace with. That's the kind of key that we're talking about. So this man, Eliakim, not only has access to the palace of the king, he is the only one with the power to make sure the door stays shut or stays open. Now Jesus is drawing on this image to say something like this. I have the key to God's kingdom. If I open it, no one else can shut it because I'm the only one that has the key. And if I shut it, no one else can open it because they don't have the key. 
And then he says, look, I have set the door to God's kingdom open before you. And no one can shut it. Like, that's, that's remarkable in and of itself. But it's even more amazing when we, when we see what we learn about this church in Philadelphia. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. He says, I know that you have but, what? Little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here we see the first power that is at play that fuels our victory, and it's this. When Jesus is king, we overcome through the power of weakness. We overcome through the power of weakness. He says to them, you have little power. Jesus gives access to his kingdom to people with little power. Actually, that can be translated because you have little power. So their power as a church, what enables them to keep going, the reason they're going to overcome is actually that they have little power. Even better than that, their power is the fact that even though they have little power, they continue to be faithful to Jesus, even though they're weak. See, the, the city of Philadelphia once enjoyed a really powerful presence in Asia Minor, uh, where, where these churches are located. That's not Pennsylvania. It's, it's across the sea. It's that Philadelphia. And they enjoyed a powerful presence in that world until everything changed when they got hit by an, an earthquake. Now, now, when we talk about an earthquake, we're not talking about Kansas earthquakes, right? Like the we will rebuild, um, chairs falling over, things like that. Like that's not the kind of earthquake they had. Like it was one that, that, that destroyed utterly their city, their structures, their economy. And after a while, after this earthquake, the government cut its support from Philadelphia and the city was just left weak and hurting. Now in the midst of this weak city was a church with even less power. From what we see, they faced many of the same things that these other churches we've looked at in Revelation have faced. We see in this letter that they faced Jewish opposition. They faced a temptation to compromise. They, they, they faced physical persecution, financial hardship. But in all of this, they continued to hold on to Jesus and refused to deny his name. What's interesting even more than that, is when we take a step back and we look at all seven letters in Revelation, the churches that actually look the strongest on the outside are the ones that, that Jesus has the most rebuke for. The churches like Sardis, and, and, and next week we're going to look at Sardis, and the week after that, Laodicea, these two churches have the most rebuke. The churches that look the strongest, Jesus says, you're actually weak. And then the only two churches who Jesus has no rebuke for are Smyrna, who he calls poor, and Philadelphia, who he says is weak and has little power. The churches that are weak, that look weak, Jesus says are actually strong. And when Jesus says this, he's tapping into an irony that, that's found throughout the story of God. And that's this, that strength is found in weakness. That true strength is found in weakness. God's kingdom doesn't value the same things that the world values. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 147 that he is not impressed by the strength of a horse. He does not value the power of a warrior. The Lord values who? Those who fear him. Those who put their hope in his faithful love. It's also this that makes the Apostle Paul say things like, I will boast all the more in my weakness 
And God's power is actually made perfect in my weakness. Because in the kingdom of God, the people with no power are the people who have the keys to the palace. The one who conquers is not the strongest or the smartest or the most powerful. It's the one who is weak, but instead of striving for power over their oppressors, continues to be faithful to Jesus. Now, why is this? How can, how can weakness actually be strength? I, I, I think this is why. Because biblical weakness sees that I am not God, and without God, I have nothing. And not only do they see that, but they see that that's actually good news. That's good news. Now, if you've been paying attention to what I call the less good news, and that's just the news, um, you know that Kanye West has made waves with his recent gospel album, Jesus is King. Now, I was in high school when the song Stronger came out, and if some of you remember, that song Stronger had the line in, and it bow before the presence of greatness, and he's talking about himself. A, a few years later, his hit album Jesus came out, and there's a song on that album called I Am a God. I Am a God. Now, now, in the aftermath of him dropping this album a couple weeks ago, uh, there have been all different perspectives, all different opinions flooding in on Kanye's music and his life and his faith. Is it real? Is it not? Is it going to cost him all of his success and his fame? But without getting into all of that, isn't it incredible to at least see someone who once proclaimed, I am a God, proclaim that Jesus is king? That is a picture of what it looks like to recognize the power of of weakness. That winning in the kingdom actually looks a lot like losing. So let me ask you this. Where in your Monday life do you feel weak? Where have you felt shut out and defeated by friends, by family, by work, by failure? Whatever that is that comes to mind, Jesus stands over you and definitively says that those who trust in him will never be shut out of his kingdom and will never be defeated. Hear that this morning. Instead, he says, keep it up. Keep looking to my example. Keep holding on to me. Keep being faithful. Keep enduring suffering and you will overcome with the power of weakness. But if you're like me and you're a little skeptical, uh, your question becomes, how? Like, how, how do we keep going strong when it feels like we're losing? That's not an easy thing to do. You may have noticed that in every letter, Jesus has ended with this call to conquer, and then he gives a promise. Like, if you do this, uh, if you conquer, then you will receive blank. He has this promise. And in Philadelphia, actually, he's given more promises than any other church. There are seven promises that, that are, permeate this letter. I think Jesus offers these promises to give the weak and faithful church at Philadelphia one thing. Hope. Hope. And that, I think, is really what's at the heart of this letter. That when Jesus is king, we endure with the power of hope. We endure with the power of hope. And when we use the word hope today, uh, it usually goes something like this. I hope I get a raise. I hope Patrick Mahomes is back next week. Micah gave us the guarantee he is, though. Uh, I hope that this guy asks me out. I hope that my kids turn out okay. I hope that my parents don't embarrass me again this week. And all of these things, while they're good things to want, express nothing more than wishful thinking, don't they? 
Like seriously, your parents not embarrassing you has about the same success rate as Taco Bell not giving me terrible digestion. Like that's not going to happen as much as we want it. We naturally use the word hope to refer to something we really want to happen, but we aren't sure if it will happen. But friends, Christian hope is quite different than that. When we talk about hope as people who follow Jesus, we're talking about something more like this. That hope is the confident expectation in a future reality that gives us energy to live today. Hope is a confident expectation in a future reality that gives us energy to live today. Now, throughout my life, uh, I have been heavily involved in musical theater. And uh, I was in shows all throughout high school and college, and every time that the musical came around, I experienced two different kinds of hope. I experienced the hope of the audition phase, and that's the kind of hope where you're like, I don't know who I'm going to be, I don't even know if I'll get cast, I don't know what my lines are going to be, I don't know anything, I'm just really hoping that I make it and I get the part that I want. Now, that kind of hope is the wishful thinking kind of hope, right? But then, once the cast list comes out, uh, you would go through a different kind of hope where you knew when the show was, you knew what part you were playing, you knew what your lines were, you knew what songs you had to sing, what dances you had to do, and so everything up to the date of the show was just preparation. It was preparation for a future reality that you knew was coming. So I would practice my lines, I would mess around with inflection, I would train my voice, I would practice dances, and sometimes I even changed my physical appearance for a show. Uh, now it's about to get vulnerable uh, because I have pictures. But for one show, for one show, I grew out a nasty mustache that you can see up here. Like, it looked, I thought it was cool, it was gross. Uh, I grew a nasty mustache. For another show, I went completely bald. Like, literally completely bald. Yes, that is me. And I went to this lady's house three times the week of the show, and she took shaving cream and rubbed it, on, rubbed it on my head, and it was very weird. And then she took a razor and, like, took a Bic razor to my head until I went bald. And for another show, this might be the worst one. Uh, I grew out thick mutton chops and wore tight leather pants. Uh, you can see that there, kind of like an Elvis-type thing going on there. But here's the idea, right? Because I knew for a fact that the performance was coming, I changed how I lived how I looked, and how I spent my free time. The closer it got, the more urgent my preparation became. Or some of you might think of vacation. When you're really struggling with your work and you know that there's a vacation on the horizon, that vacation becomes your hope. Like when we know we have a vacation coming, we're not sitting there like saying, vacation, please fall on me. Right? We know when it is, we know where, maybe where we're going, we lean into that future reality of a vacation to give us energy to live and work faithfully today. And the same is true of Christian hope. It's not wishful thinking, but a future reality that we can be confident will come to pass. Friends, our hope is sure. We know the end of the story, don't we? And we can lean into that when we feel weak, when we are suffering, to give us energy to hold on and keep going. For the church that overcomes, hope is the fuel for endurance. So if that's what hope is, what does Jesus promise? What hope does he give this church that conquers? Let's finish the letter starting in verse 9. Read with me. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope is that Jesus is coming. We believe that one day soon he will return and when he comes back, there are a number of things that he promises he will do when he returns. And the first thing we see here in verse nine is this, that we will be vindicated. We hope in the promise of vindication. Now, vindication is basically a fancy word for Jesus saying, you were right, right? He says, like, they will see that I loved you. You were right about that. But the idea here is that he will lift up these weak Christians and judge the people who are oppressing them. When he comes, those who are weak in the eyes of the world but have remained faithful will be lifted up and rule with Jesus forever. So let me ask you, think about your life for a second. Who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? Is it a boss? Is it a coworker? Another parent or person who has it better than you? Maybe an ex-spouse? Who are your enemies? See, this hope of vindication frees us. It frees us to continually faithful witness to these people instead of striving for power over them. To not try to dominate over them, but instead share Jesus' love with them. Wanting, wanting, praying that they will one day, when Jesus comes, be the ones worshiping beside us and not at our feet. Is that the desire that you have for your enemies? Do you trust that vindication is not in your hands, but in the hands of the one who has the key to the palace? So we will be vindicated. Jesus gives another promise here for the conquering church, starting in verse 12. He says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. So Jesus says he will make them a pillar in God's temple, which which is signifying God's presence. And like we talked about earlier, Philadelphia had this history of earthquakes. so, So their lives were marked with uncertainty and instability. Wouldn't yours be if you were like, I don't know when the next earthquake will come, when I might next be dislodged from my home? They lived lives of uncertainty and instability. So this promise of stability and permanence in their future reward would have been so uniquely meaningful to them. Jesus is saying that that their foundation in the presence of God, both now and forever, is ultimately secure. And that is the second hope that Jesus gives this church. We will be secure. We hope in the promise of security. So take a minute and think, what in your Monday life right now feels insecure? Feels unstable? Is it your family? Is it your health? Is it your job? Is it preparation for college? Is it your work? Whatever that is, whatever came to mind just there, rest in Jesus' words that even when your Monday feels insecure, your future is secure. That is your hope. So we will be vindicated. 
We will be secure. And Jesus has one more promise to give this church in Philadelphia. Let's read the end. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So Jesus finally promises them this series of names that they will share. Now, we don't know what all of these names mean, uh, but the language of the New Jerusalem at least points us to the end of the book of Revelation. In, in Revelation 21 and 22, we get a picture of this new Jerusalem. And this picture, this vision for what the ultimate goal of all of creation is, is a beautiful vision of restoration. That we will be restored The New Jerusalem is a picture that when Jesus comes back, he will restore all things to himself, make all wrongs right, and make all things new. And at this time, everyone who has died in him, we believe, will be raised with him, that we'll be raised to a new kind of life in a new kind of body that can never die again. At this time, he will also establish a a new heaven and a new earth, this physical place where we will be with God as our king forever. It's a place where our new bodies will live with God free from pain and suffering and shame. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you are suffering emotionally, your body is aching, You are sick, you are in pain. Friends, this is your hope. That one day you will be raised to a new body that can never die again and live a new life in the presence of God forever, free from pain and suffering and shame. That's what you have to look forward to, to give you energy to live today. So we overcome through weakness, that power of weakness. We endure with the power of hope. And if this is true, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions as we close. The first is this. Where are you placing your hope? Where are you placing your hope? Is it in a political party? A vision of a comfortable life that if I could only achieve this? Is it money? Is it success professionally? Is it a relationship, retirement? Is it it that the church will take the world by force? Friends, whatever those are, can you see that those will ultimately fail you? That one day, every one of those things will fail. And only the one who has the keys to the palace can guarantee our victory. Are you with him? Where are you placing your hope? Second question is this. Would people look at us, Christ community, a people of God, the church at large, and describe us as a community of hope? Would they call us a community of hope? See, our culture is full of blame shifting and outrage and anxiety, and fear is what sells, and anger is what gets our attention. And our temptation, isn't it, is is, is to to join in that, right? Right? to to become a part of the anger and of the hate and of the outrage. But our greatest witness as a community is not that, but to say, hey, with Jesus, all of this ends well. 
come with us? Are we living Monday lives that cause people to ask why we have so much hope? Jesus himself had a reason for his hope. And that hope was you, and that hope was me, and that hope was the world that he loves. Jesus had strength, right? He had all of the strength that you could want, but he chose what looked weak to the world. It looked like he lost, but did he lose? You can say something. Did he lose? No. He was victorious. He was vindicated. He alone overcame. And he is coming soon. And all those who have walked with the same hopeful weakness will overcome with him. And until then, friends, keep going with the power of weakness and the power of hope to sustain you. Keep going knowing that when Jesus is king, winning looks a lot like losing. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that our vindication and our security and our restoration are not in our hands nor are they, can they be given by anything in this world. But I thank you that you give us the confidence that that's the reality we have to look forward to. God, would you send us from this place motivated, energized, made alive by the hope we have to look forward to. And I pray that that would help us to get through the difficulties, the weakness, the suffering that lies ahead. Show us your power and your strength this week. In the name of your son Jesus, by the blood of his redemption and by the power of his spirit, amen.